Welcome to a special edition of the Gate 7 International Podcast, your official English source for all things Olympiakos FC, Greek football, and analytics. I am Peter Thompson. I'm here with my co-host Adi Bulubasis. We are missing Lambro today. This is something that he probably wouldn't want to contribute to. He's an eye test man, tried and true. But Adi and I today are going to discuss analytics. Uh, if you listen to our podcast, you'll know that we use analytics a lot in our discussions of players, whether it's a deep dive on a potential signing or going over our players' performances from a recent game. We use analytics for a lot of reasons, and we use them a lot to make our arguments about who's good, who we should bring in, who should start, so on and so forth. We've gotten a lot of uh, interaction on social media about our analytics and stuff like that. If you're not following us on social media already, do so at Gate7INTL on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Reddit. And we figured that we should make an episode dedicated to analytics, more specifically informing the audience about what type of analytics we use, laying out some definitions, and providing some context to the numbers that we use. So we're going to get right into it. Uh, we're not going to have any news or housekeeping or anything. This is an episode that we intend for people to listen to uh, late after the fact, so we're not going to include any transfer rumors for you know the January 2021 transfer window if you're listening to this in March 2021. So we're just going to get straight into the analytics. Uh, we do want to start off by just discussing more generally why we use analytics in general. To sum it up in my own words, uh, numbers allow for you to be relieved of your personal biases. So I like you know, Kostas Fortunis, he's one of my favorite players. If I see him on the pitch, I might think of him more highly than I would of another player just subconsciously because he's one of my favorite players. Lazar Ranjejevic, not one of our favorite players here at the podcast. If he has a relatively just as good game as Kostas Fortunis, we will probably say Fortunis played better, you know, without the numbers. That's just subconscious bias. That's kind of how it works. And another reason is what we might call the halo effect. So if a player does one good thing, you know, that's what you remember. And it's very easy to fall into because as humans, it's basically impossible to remember every player's action from a 90 minute game. So maybe if a player has one good ball, but they end up actually giving the ball away many other times, they might've overall not had a very good game, but that one good moment is going to stick in your mind more permanently than the bad moments. And that can lead to bias as well. And the opposite happens. If one player does a very bad thing, you know, it can sort of wipe away some other good things that they did during the game. This is something very common we see when people discuss Greek football as well. And it's part of the reason that we knew we needed analytics. There are so many people, as soon as the game happened, whether it's the Greek national team playing, doesn't matter. They will see one thing, one bad giveaway from a guy like Holebas or El Arabi or Rafinha, and that will then dictate to them how well he did. It is something we see all the time. We still see it, even as much as we contribute analytics to the picture, as much as we contribute that to the discussion, there are still people, one thing will happen, and they will say, this guy had a terrible game, when in reality, he had maybe a mistake. Right, and that's why we want to make sure that you know we lay out the numbers. We also do want to make sure that we provide context to these numbers, because at the end of the day, numbers are an approximation. And you'll see us in this episode talk about some of the things that we think are wrong with the analytics that we get and how we act accordingly to sort of change the definitions. But at the end of the day, you know, analytics are sort of an approximation of roughly how well a player played. And then, you know, we can watch the game and sort of add on to that. But 
I think missing either one of those pieces, you know, if you just go straight off numbers or just straight off eye test, you're definitely missing something. And that's why we try to incorporate both into our analysis during the podcast. So before we do begin giving out definitions, we want to say a big thank you to Scout, particularly, and also StatsBomb slash Football Reference. Uh, those are basically the main sources where we get our analytics. Scout is great, and they provide all sorts of film, all sorts of clips, all sorts of numbers for every game in the Super League and whatnot. Uh, so we are very grateful for them. And that's where we're going to be talking about most of the analytics that we have. Most of those definitions that we're going to discuss come from Scout or potentially stats bomb, depending on uh, which value we're looking at. We also have developed some of our own analytics. Uh, some They're proprietary and they're based on the analytics that we get from these sites. Mm -hmm. uh, the reason we've done that is because some of these different metrics we either disagree with or we believe there's further context that comes along with it. You've heard us mention in the past effective offensive duels because the, the algorithm, as far as it's concerned, if somebody has a ball, and they're trying to possess against a defender coming to them, if they go backwards, it's a loss. Now, in certain contexts, that's correct. If you're in an attack and that move disrupted the attack and you had to go backwards and reset, yes, that would be a loss. But sometimes you're not in the middle of the attack. You just have a ball and you're in trouble and you need to get out of it. Scout and other algorithms will always consider that a loss if you're not making it closer to goal with a dribble or in an offensive duel when you're hold, trying to hold possession. We don't think that's correct. That's why we created this new metric. That way you have a clear picture. When we say this guy won five of seven duels or six of seven, we say he won effectively six of seven. So you know, okay, six out of seven times, he got out of pressure and it didn't spoil an attack. That's why we do that. And we are going to provide some insight on what our proprietary analytics are. Yes, that's right. Now let's just begin with team metrics. Obviously, I think besides goals, uh, the most familiar team metrics to people might be possession. You know, obviously things like total shots or shots on target. Uh, people use possession a lot of times to sort of evaluate which team quote unquote dominated the game. Uh, a lot of times we see, you know, teams might have a lot of possession, but they might not actually do anything with it. So that stat can sometimes be misleading. And that's why we sort of try to look in between the lines a little bit. One analytic that you see us talk about a lot is positional attacks. So what this looks at is when you had the ball in open play, how effective were you at actually, you know, doing something with your possession? And the direct definition of this is a positional attack is a possession that doesn't start from a set piece, i.e. free kick, cross, or free kick shot, a corner, throw in, penalty, none of that. The possession should have at least one successful action in the opposition final third. So you're actually getting the ball in the dangerous area. You're, you're possessing the ball in that area. You're not just knocking it around the back. And it's not a counter. So for that, we look at all those positional attacks. And a lot of times what we look for is the efficiency of those positional attacks. Efficiency is the percentage of the positional attacks that result in a shot. Not a shot on target, just a shot. So we look at this for Olympiacos. On average, this season, Olympiacos are looking at roughly 20% in terms of positional attack efficiency. And that's off of about 30 positional attacks per game. These metrics, by the way, the numbers that we're bringing up, we're recording this in December, so these might not be accurate when you're listening to it. And that's why we're not going to get into a lot of the exact numbers, but we want to give people an idea as to what sort of a good number. 19.8%, uh, as we've mentioned on some episodes in the past, it's not a bad efficiency rating. Top teams in Europe, top teams in the top leagues, they're in the mid to high 20s, sometimes 30%. 
very effective at breaking down defenses, very effective at getting to the goal, getting shots off. So that's something you should always bear in your mind. Now, like we said, below 20% isn't bad. If you're in that 18, 19%, 20%, that's okay. It's not fantastic, but it's okay. Really poor is if you're in the 15, 14%. We've mentioned in the past, right now, Larissa has the worst efficiency in the Greek Super League as we're speaking with 14%. That's the worst. So that hopefully kind of gives you a little bit of an idea what is good which is, or what is what is bad. Yes. And then I mentioned that positional attacks do not include counters. So typically uh, we look at positional attacks and we also look at counterattacks. A counterattack, as you might be familiar with from watching football, is quickly after a turnover, the team switches quickly from defense to attack. So you know, it might be a quick breakaway. Usually the entire team is not set. The opponent is out of their defensive shape. You're looking at maybe um, five on five situation as opposed to all 10 players being forward. So that's a counterattack, usually moves very quickly. And as a result, when we look at counterattack efficiency, counterattacks in general are more likely to result in a shot because you're moving quickly, there's less defenders back, and it's just easier to get that shot off. A lot of times you see teams, you know, Jose Mourinho and other Portuguese managers love to sit back, let the other team have a handful of the possession, and then counterattack, strike while the iron is hot. And that's how they score a majority of their goals. So when we look at possession, possession might not be super indicative of how dangerous a team is if they're really clinical in those counterattacks. And that's correct. And a, and a good percentage, a good efficiency for counters is going to be in that 40-50% range. You're going to see teams that are very effective on the counter. Uh, teams like Mourinho's Tottenham, uh, some Spanish teams, some German teams, Italian teams especially, they are going to have higher percentages. Every team usually usually does. As Peter mentioned, when you're on the counter, t- uh, other defending teams aren't in their defensive shape. Sometimes there's odd men. Uh, it's an odd man attack. There's more players going towards the goal, and it gives them an advantage. So expect that those efficiency numbers will be higher. Right. And then we mentioned at the beginning that sometimes you might look at shots. How many shots did your team get? That is a good metric because obviously sometimes, you know, the actual result of the game might not be indicative of who was the better team. You know, this is how it works in football with so few scores. Occasionally you just have a lucky goal that swings the result. So sometimes you might say, oh, let's look at shots and see who had the more shots. That might mean that we were the better team if we had more shots. But that also doesn't sort of get at the quality of the shots you're looking at, even if you're looking at shots on target. And that's why the metric expected goals is oftentimes used. This is a metric that you may have heard of. Uh, It might be familiar to you if you play Football Manager. In Football Manager 2021, they've included expected goals on the scoreboard, so you can very easily see how much XG your team has. A lot of people sort of think of it as a black box, or in other words, you know, just some, some term that's impossible to understand where it comes from. It's just a number spit out, but it basically represents, as the name would suggest, how many goals you might expect your team to score given the shots that you took. So it takes in a whole bunch of stuff. It's a predictive EWMA model. And for each shot that your team takes in the game, it's assigned an XG. For each shot, it's a likelihood of scoring that shot from zero to one. How often does that shot end up in a goal? And then you total that entire XG up from the, from the team, and you get your XG for the entire game. And when we say EWMA, EWMA is 
just an abbreviated term for exponentially weighted moving average. Now, this isn't exactly what the model is. It's a little bit more complex than that. But what this is, is it's a weighted average, a moving average used to determine for seasonality, things like that. And it takes the last five years of every shot from every league that's occurred in different places. And that's what's used to determine the average or the likelihood that a goal will occur from a specific position. Now, what the X, the X goal model does to calculate probability, it has all of these different parameters depending on what occurs. It will measure based on where the shot is, the location of the assist, where the pass came from that led to it, uh, whether it was a shot with your foot or your head, the type of assist, again, whether the assist was foot, head, was it air, was it ground? Was there a dribble of a field player or goalkeeper before the shot? Is it coming from a set piece? Was the shot a counterattack or did it happen in transition? Additionally, the there is a little bit of a subjective measure here because whoever's tagging it, their assessment of the danger of the shot is also included in this weighted algorithm to determine whether or not something is likely to become a goal. These parameters, plus a few technical ones, are used to train the model in the historical Scout data algorithm and predict the probability of a shot being scored. So this isn't just a random black box that nobody should understand. Is it difficult? Is there a lot involved? Absolutely. But there's a lot that goes into it to make sure that it gives us a very accurate and time-sensitive frame for us to determine whether or not someone's likely to score from a specific position. That's right. And we've included this as a team metric. We also, a lot of times what we like to do is break down XG by the spatial region of the field, in, especially in positional attacks. So we'll say in our positional attacks on the left side, we had this many XG. And then on the right, we had this much. Down the middle, we had this much. And that sort of gives you an idea of how threatening we were as a team in each portion of the field. A lot of times we can use that to sort of analyze, are our wingers playing well? Are we playing with width? Are the fullbacks getting involved? All of this stuff. Uh, can be interpreted through XG. And do we do have it as a team metric here, but you can also look at the XG for a player because as we said, each shot individually has its own XG. So you can say, oh, this player might not have scored a goal, but they had a very high XG. And you can interpret from that that they're getting in good positions and getting shots on target. And that can be more indicative of a player's performance, especially for someone who takes a lot of shots like a striker. Uh, that can be more indicative than just how many goals they scored. So moving on to the next metric, we're going to talk about PPDA or passes per defensive action. This is a metric that we've brought up a lot. And what we use it for is to see how a team is pressing. So if you have a lower PPDA, which implies that when your opponents have the ball, you're allowing them more passes before you take a defensive action. Um, that means that you're pressing more. So lower PPDA in the single digits oftentimes means you're pressing a lot. As a team, Olympiacos, averages about 10. And this season that's aggregated from the Champions League group stage as well as the Greek Super League. So when we're playing Super League teams, uh, we're pressing much more um, in the single digits. And when we're playing big teams like Manchester City, we're up as high as 20 because we're not pressing as hard. We don't want to put on that much pressure against such a good team in possession. When we're measuring PPDA, it's important for everybody to remember the algorithm only takes into consideration pressing events by our defensive players that occur in the final 60% of the field. So our defensive third, there is no pressing in the defensive third. Pressing is only tabulated basically in the middle and final thirds of the field. 
that tells you kind of how aggressive we get, especially when we're not in a danger zone in our area of the field, how aggressive we get when we don't have the ball. So in, in, the in the middle and the final third of the field, we calculate all the opponent passes that start and then divide that start there rather and divide them by the sum of defensive actions. This includes fouls, interceptions, defensive duels one, sliding tackles. All of those are taken into consideration, all those defensive actions of the pressing team. And then we divide it by the opponent's passes in, by defensive actions. And then we go into it further with match results. We'll break it up into quarters or thirds of a half so that you can get an idea periodically in what phases of the game we were most active. And that's important as well when we look at, you know, the timings of pressing. Sometimes we will see that Olympiacos will have sort of bouts where they press very high and our PPDA is down in the single digits, and then we sort of uh, sit off and relax. And obviously that's very important because if you press super hard for 90 minutes against just about anyone, your players will probably begin to get tired and you'll be less effective with the ball. So you don't want to use all that energy, you want to pick your moments. And so we can use that PPDA breakdown courtesy of Scout as an indicator of, you know, did Pedro Martins pick a good time to press? Did we press too much or too little? And, you know, when did we really hit the opponents? So that's uh, sort of another way that we use PPDA. One last team metric, uh, and we are going to get into player metrics. Obviously, for all the player metrics, you can just sum them up over the players and make them a team metric. But we're going to talk about things generally in the way that we uh, interpret them on the podcast most frequently. Uh, one last team metric that we want to look at is match tempo. So this one is relatively simple. Uh, it's just how many passes per minute you basically have as a team when you're possessing the ball. So when you have pure possession of the ball, you know, it's not going back and forth. How many passes are you making per minute? Um, obviously, faster tempo would mean more passes. And we might also see this change depending on the opponent and depending on how much possession that Olympiacos have. Teams like Barcelona or Manchester City, Spanish-style teams that play more openly and play quick, more quickly with the ball, they are going to be much closer to 20. 20 passes per minute, sometimes even higher than that. Just something to bear in mind. Uh, Libyakos is averaging, in terms of match tempo, about 17 passes per pure minute of possession. Uh, now, remember, pure minute of possession is we take away all the parts where we lose the ball, and then we only tabulate the time where we're passing the ball around because this gives us an idea of when we do have the ball, do we play quick, do we play slow? Yep, that's, that's exactly right. And then going into the player metrics, the one thing we want to talk about right off the bat is we use a lot of different passing metrics. And it might be confusing to our listeners what each one of them means because you see key passes, smart passes, through passes, progressive passes, long balls, all of this stuff. They are all different things for the most part. Uh, they all have their unique definitions that Scout or whoever has. And so we want to break them down right now. A key pass... First of all, according to Scout, is a pass that immediately creates a clear goal-scoring opportunity for a teammate who fails to score it. Now, the reason it fails to score it is because if the teammate did score, then it would be an assist. So assists are not key passes. They're separate things. And for these key passes, it doesn't even have to lead to a shot. So maybe you can imagine uh, Vrusai gives a nice ball into El Arabi, who in turn dribbles too much and messes it up and then it goes out for a goal kick or something or, or the opponents take the ball. That is still a key pass if it's a clear goal scoring opportunity that is made from that pass. 
So that's something that we can use to mention if a player is being creative and making things happen on the pitch. Don't forget, this has to be a clear goal-scoring opportunity directly as a result of the pass. Things can be shot assists if you just play the ball to somebody, they dribble it around for a while, then get a shot off. So if you remember when Bacasetas passed the ball to Fortunis against Moldova, he passed the ball about 10 meters behind him. Fortunis took it, dribbled through two defenders, and then scored the goal. Bacasetas was credited with an assist for that or a shot assist. Now, had Fortunis maybe missed that, Bacasetas doesn't get credited with a key pass because the pass didn't lead directly to a goal-scoring opportunity. He just happened to pass the ball and Fortunis dribbled and made a shot out of it. Yeah, so he would have gotten a shot assist, but not a key pass if Fortunis didn't score. He gets the assist because Fortunis did score, regardless of whether it was a clear goal-scoring opportunity or not. So that's key passes. Now, uh, we're not going to necessarily get too deep into, you know, what's a good number for these because just like assists, no player is getting, you know, dozens of these per game. Um, key passes are, in general, something that happens rather infrequently. The top players on teams might have a few per game, but it's not something that happens like tons of times uh, for an individual player unless you have like a truly amazing creator. Even Costas Fortunis is, you know, I don't know exactly what he's on, but, you know, probably a handful of key passes per game. Let's move on to smart passes now. This is one thing that you've seen us talk about as a team. Uh, Olympiacos in the fall into winter of 2020 had a remarkable lack of smart passes with the absence of Matthew Valbuena. So we have mentioned the team smart passes is just incredibly low in that time period uh, without Valbuena in the team. Olympiacos as a team throughout the season have averaged five smart passes per game. Uh, the key about these smart passes, I shouldn't use key in smart passes, but whatever. Um, the main thing about these smart passes is that they don't need to be successful. So uh, Scout keeps track of attempted and successful smart passes. For Olympiacos, about 30% of our smart passes are successful in terms of getting to another player. So the definition of a smart pass is a creative and penetrative pass that attempts to break the opposition's defensive lines to gain a significant advantage in attack. So keyword there is attempts. It doesn't have to be successful, but a pass, you know, with thought that gets through the defensive line, goes past a couple of defenders, and may or may not actually be successful. Smart passes do not have to lead directly to a shot. This is something that you could say is a bit of a subjective metric because what some people, what you may consider in a, a huge advantage in attack or what some people might consider a huge advantage in, in attack might differ from one to another. What Scout considers a significant advantage in attack is something that not only spurs the defense forward, it usually, it can be a through pass. They usually are through passes that split two defenders. It can be a chip over that leads to a one-on-one -on -one situation with the defender. Usually it's something in and around in front of goal. In some cases it isn't. In some cases it could be out to a corner, which then leads to a goal scoring opportunity. It can be a retroactive metric in that regard. But these types of smart passes we use to determine whether or not we are capable of breaking down the defense of a team. It, it's also something we look at for midfielders. We've talked about this with Fortunis, Matalos, Pacasetas. Smart passes and the recurrence of somebody attempting smart passes is an indicator of vision. Players with good vision have the tendency to cut and look to cut the defensive lines. They have the tendency to see where players are going 
where their players are moving, just like a chessboard. And then they know the move that has to be made in order to break that defense down. That's why these are called smart passes. Different websites, different programs may call it different things. It can be like OptaData. They call it big scoring opportunities. StatsBomb has their own for it as well. Major scoring threats, things like that. All of this is considered with a smart pass. Smart passes are very important and something that we look for and like to see more of when we look and determine whether or not Olympiacos or other teams are breaking down defensive lines. Not to be confused with through passes or through balls, as they're more commonly known. This is a metric that does have some degree of overlap, but the definition here is a through ball is a pass that cuts at least two defenders and goes behind the defensive line for a teammate to collect. Through balls aren't necessarily smart passes. A lot of through balls can be smart passes. But if you're just sending a through ball to the corner so that somebody could then make a cross, it might not be a smart pass because it didn't create a huge advantage for you. Not all crosses are considered huge advantages. Not all through balls give you those direct advantages. A through ball is literally just a ball that cuts the defensive line and a player is there to receive it. This doesn't make it any less important. Through balls are still important because, again, this is how we determine whether or not we're breaking down a defense. Yeah, and that's why a lot of times you see us sort of list off these metrics together for players. So maybe you have a key pass, a couple smart passes, and a through ball. And we include those together because if you sort of take all of these numbers together, it gives you a more accurate picture of the entire player's performance throughout the game. One more sort of similar metric that we want to look at is progressive passes. This is a forward pass that attempts to advance a team significantly closer to the opponent's goal. So this is a bit more general. It doesn't have to, you know, do anything about going by the defenders or creating a, a big attacking chance or anything like that. Um, a pass is considered progressive by Scout if the distance between the starting point of the pass and then the next touch where it's received is at least 30 meters closer to the opponent's goal if the starting and finishing points are within a team's own half. So you can have a progressive pass that doesn't even end in, you know, the attacking portion of the pitch. It, you, it can be Ruben Semedo just feeding Mari Camara, you know, up the pitch and then advancing that attack forward and sort of jumpstarting that attack. If the starting and finishing points are in different halves, so you start in your defensive half and then end in the attacking half, the pass has to be at least 15 meters closer to the opponent's goal. Notice that this is not the length of the pass. It is how much closer you get to the goal. So if you pass it across the pitch and it's only like a, it only gets you a few meters closer to the goal, even if it is a forward pass, not necessarily a progressive pass. And then lastly, if both the start and the end of the pass are in the attacking half of the pitch, the pass must get you at least 10 meters closer to the goal. And the same goes for progressive runs. Everything you just heard for progressive passes, when we talk about progressive runs, it is the same thing, except instead of passing the ball, you're running with the ball at your feet. You don't hear us talk about this metric all the time. If somebody ends up doing it a lot, or when they do it, they end up making a lot of dangerous opportunities, it's something we pay attention to because then it's important. Just because you're making progressive passes, just because you're making progressive runs, doesn't mean you're doing anything meaningful. It has to lead to something for us to consider whether or not this is a meaningful metric for that player. That's right. And then one more passing metric that we're going to get into is long balls. Now, Scout does have short and medium passes. They sort of break the length of the pass into those three intervals, but we mainly focus on long balls because these are the more difficult passes 
And oftentimes they can be more indicative of a player's vision as well, because it's easy to see the short pass. A lot of times it's more difficult to pick out a player far away and accurately finish that pass. A lot of times, at least for some context here as a team, Olympiacos complete about 60% of their long passes. Opponents are slightly less efficient at around 54.2%. When we discuss this metric, we often break long passes into two categories. We look at, you know, switching the field, which is typically much easier to do. So if Ruben Semedo blasts the ball over to Jose Jovebas, uh, like I mentioned, you know, it might only get a few meters closer to the goal. It's just across the pitch. There's no defenders in the way. That's a very easy pass to complete. Jose Jovebas will have time to touch it and move to, you know, receive the pass. It's much easier to do that. So when we look at long passes, we want to actually see how many of them are just switching the field. If you complete all your long balls, but you're just switching the field like eight times, not really as impressive as downfield passes. You know, Jan and Vila blasting it down to Rafinha in a crossing area and picking him out going over the defense. That's a much more impressive long pass. So we sort of break it down into those two categories. Now, as far as how long does a pass have to be to register as a long ball in Y Scout, it depends on if the ball sort of rolls on the ground or goes in the air. So ground passes must be longer than 45 meters to be considered a long ball, and passes in the air have to be longer than 25 meters. Moving on from pass actions, we're going to discuss now duels. Duels are something that we get into a lot, both offensive and defensive. Offensive duels is one that we get into a lot when discussing all offensive players, even our own defensive midfielders, when they're carrying the ball forward. An offensive duel is when the attacking player uses their ability and skill in an attempt to pass an opponent. This is also a dribble. We bring up dribbles as well. Dribbles, all dribbles are offensive duels, but not all offensive duels are dribbles. A dribble has to be a player attempting to use a skill to beat a defender one-on-one. -on -one. An offensive duel doesn't necessarily involve the player trying to beat the defender, but it can just be the player trying to hold possession against the defender. When the player in possession is required to protect the ball with his body, although this is an offensive duel, it is not a dribble. That is the Y-Scout definition. Offensive duels can happen anywhere on the pitch, including inside a player's own penalty area. So basically... As long as you have the ball at your feet and somebody comes to close you down to steal it from you, whether or not you dribble out of it or get yourself out of it, it's an offensive duel. doesn't matter where you're located. If you have the ball, somebody's coming in to get it, you are in the middle of an offensive duel, and the player trying to get it from you is in the middle of a defensive duel. If the next action following the duel is by the same offensive player and that action is closer to the opponent's goal, or if the duel was a dribble and it's followed by a touch of an attacking teammate closer to the opponent's goal, then the attacker in the duel or the defender in the duel gets a success. So this means if you get out of the offensive duel and you end up closer to the goal with possession at your feet, you have won the offensive duel. Otherwise, the person that has come in in the defensive duel to take the ball from you is more is successful in the defensive duel. Now we have introduced our own metric from this called effective offensive duels. If the offensive player successfully protects the ball in possession when he has been closed down by a defender and an attack has not been disrupted, he effectively wins the duel. Remember, Y Scout's definition of an offensive duel is that when you are closed down by a player, you get yourself out of it. You end up closer to goal. It's a success. The key there is you have to be closer to goal. For us, 
that doesn't necessarily tell the whole story. Remember, you can get the ball and not be involved in an attack. You could win the ball, recover the ball from interception, or perhaps the team is stuck in possession in the middle of the field. In those situations, if, you, if you're getting the ball and you're closed down by players, but successfully get yourself out of it, that is a successful offensive duel. You may not have gotten closer to the goal, but you maintained possession and allowed the attack to continue. In this case, that is a successful, effective offensive duel. Yeah, so that's what we mentioned at the beginning. Going back to that, we sort of have made up some metrics. And I don't want to say made up because, you know, Adi just explained why it makes sense to evaluate players that way. And sometimes why Scout doesn't capture when a player might do something good. So we sort of tweak the definition. Uh, and we also do this in some sense for defensive duels. As we said, for every offensive duel, there is a defensive duel. So the definition of a defensive duel is fairly straightforward. It's basically, you know, in layman's terms, when, a, when an offensive player comes at a defender, you know, that's a defensive duel in some way. So when a player attempts to dispossess an off opposition player to stop an attack from progressing, that is a defensive duel. If the defensive player stopped the progression of the attacker with the ball and didn't commit a foul, that is considered a successful defensive duel and then obviously a failed offensive duel. So very easy to think about defensive duels it's easy to imagine what that would be. You know, an opposing attacker comes at Ushenu Ba and Ba gets his foot in safely without committing a foul and dispossesses him. It can even be if someone's running at Ba and Ba just clears it out for a throw. That is a, a successful defensive duel because the progression of the attacking player with the ball has been stopped. The attack has been basically reset. It's now a throw. That is still a successful defensive duel according to Y Scout. And as we talked about with offensive duels, even if the attacker stays with the ball, but the defender forces the attacker to go back, that is a successful defensive duel. Because according to Scout's definition, that is stopping the progression of the attacking player. And it's important for everyone to remember defensive duels are involved when somebody is closing down a player with the ball. A successful defensive duel doesn't mean you shut down a passing lane. It doesn't mean that you were positionally aware. A successful defensive duel just means when you went to close the player down with the ball, you were or were not successful in doing that. There are other metrics involved when figuring out whether or not a player successfully closes down a passing lane or is positionally aware. Right. Now let's move on to the other two types of duels that we look at, primarily for defensive players, uh, but they're also important for attackers or midfielders as well. The first one is aerial duels. So this is, just as it sounds, uh, when two players from opposing teams or more jump to compete for the ball, whoever gets their head on the ball wins the aerial duel. So we talk about Ruben Semedo. He's a big dude. He's very athletic and strong. He wins a lot of aerial duels. Pape Cisse, he's very tall, but he could probably be better with his aerial duels. Um, the win goes to whoever touches the ball. So sometimes you can win an aerial duel, but give the ball right away. That still counts as winning the duel because you get your head on the ball over the other player. We also consider this important at times for strikers if you think about blasting a ball up to El Arabi and he gets it down with his head, holds up play nicely, and gets it to another Olympiacos attacker. We also want to see our strikers winning aerial duels. Now, El Arabi is obviously not a huge aerial threat, but we still look at that for him when we want to see how well he's holding up play and the impact that he's having on the game. Another duel type is loose ball duels. 
Loose ball duels are a duel for a ball when no team has clear possession of the ball. Loose ball duels don't occur as often as some people would think. The way the algorithm picks it up is that two players have to be relatively equidistant to the ball in order for it to count as a loose ball duel. There can be no successive passes prior to the loose ball. It generally spawns from a loss. And that loss can be a loss for in possession or a loss from a recovery. It doesn't matter. But usually loose ball duels re uh, result from a loss. And a few notes about the last three duels that we just discussed in terms of what's a good number. Loose balls, you might think of them, uh, we use a term in a lot of American sports, uh, for example, basketball, 50-50 balls. You know, this is something that you would theoretically expect each player involved has an equal chance of getting to the ball. And that's why Adi said the way they define them, the players have to be roughly equidistant. So when you look at a player's loose ball dual win rate, you know, maybe from one game, there's not going to be a lot of these. But if you look at that win rate, you'll expect it to average out around 50%. If a player is consistently winning more than 50% of those loose ball duels, that is good. And then obviously uh, vice versa, if they're winning consistently less than 50%. For defensive duels, if you're a defender, you're expected to win more than half. I think we talked about Ike are only winning 50% of their defensive duels over the course of the season. That's below average. If you look at the top five leagues in European football, Spain, England, France, Germany, and Italy, the leader right now, uh, as this is being recorded for defensive duel win rate for qualified players, is Sergio Ramos, which might not surprise a lot of people. He's sitting in the high 70s for a percentage of duels won. So if you're in the 70% to 80% range, you're probably a top defender in your competition. You're doing very well. We've talked about games where Ushenu Ba has eight duels and wins all of them. That's an exceptional performance from Ba. Obviously, this is all defensive duels without any of our modifications, but that's just to give people an idea. For aerial duels, it's sort of similar in the sense that um, for every aerial duel, there's usually one winner and one loser, unless more than two players are involved. So the average is going to be roughly 50%, maybe a little bit less to account for aerial duels that have three or more players in them. Generally, though, defenders usually win more of their aerial duels. So you want to see your defenders winning more than 50% of those balls in the air because they're the big, strong guys who are meant to just get it out of the box. Now, the next thing we're going to go into are interceptions. An interception is an act of a player actively intercepting the ball by anticipating its movement when the opponent is shooting, passing, or crossing. When a shot is blocked by a player, typically it's a defender, it counts as an interception in the algorithm. The thing that we want to focus on here is actively intercepting. Actively intercepting by anticipating the movement. An interception occurs when a player identifies a pass as occurring or sees the trajectory of something occurring and then is able to block it out because of it. It requires intent. If it is something that is accidental, it does not count as an interception. It counts as a recovery. Not all interceptions are recoveries. Not all recoveries are interceptions. And the key here is also, this usually involves a pass or a shot. So unlike a defensive duel, when it's just dispossessing a player with the ball, you're getting in the way of a pass. So you're not even necessarily close to the player when you complete an interception. Now, as Adi mentioned, the sort of stat that goes with interceptions a lot of time is recoveries. So a recovery is any action that ends a possession of the opposition team and then starts a possession for the current team. The sort of opposite for recoveries are losses. So for every recovery, there is a loss in possession for 
the other team. A recovery is recorded at the point where the player of the team beginning the possession touches the ball. So if there's an unsuccessful long pass, like Jose Saab boots a ball halfway across the pitch, and then uh, an opposing player gets his head on the ball and recovers it, the loss will be recorded as near Jose Sa's goal, and the recovery will be recorded at the ending point of the pass, maybe towards the middle of the field. When a team's possession starts after the ball goes out of the pitch or with a foul, those are not considered recoveries. So it has to be just, you know, a clean play where the, the ball is taken away and then uh, recovered by the newly possessing team. One thing we don't really focus on, and it's something that we don't talk about too much, is losses. A loss for Scout, as we mentioned briefly, is kind of any action where the player that is going after the ball or has the ball in possession ends up losing the ball or the opponent gets possession. This metric is a little tricky and it's a little bit misleading because Scout considers many different things losses. A player could be going up for a header and you might get your head up and then the ball just goes straight up, falls down, the player gets it. They record that as a loss. For us, when you hear someone losing the ball, you think of something that's a little bit more active or intentful or something a little bit more egregious. So we don't spend too much time talking about losses because what a lot of what Scout considers a loss and then records as a loss, sometimes you and I wouldn't say is a loss. You know, it could be something where a player, an attacker is running down the end line and he's by himself with two defenders closing down on him. So he deflects the ball off of them to win a, a throw in. Scout would consider that a loss, but when you're watching the game, you know that, that the intention was to get the throw in to keep possession, but to allow people to, to come forward. In some cases, if it's a defender, you're just trying to clear a ball. You know, defenders aren't actively trying to keep possession if they're clearing the ball. Why Scout records that as a loss. So, what we do instead to really give people a better idea of when somebody is losing possession and making poor decisions is we created our own metric called poor giveaways in possession. And a poor giveaway in possession is an egregious loss. An egregious loss is a loss that occurs from a bad decision when playing with the ball at the cost of a clearer and more optimal decision, or when somebody executes an action with the ball very poorly. So to clarify the first part, a bad decision at the cost of a clear decision. Holebas is running down the ball, running down the wing. There's two defenders waiting to close him down. He has a square pass, which is a pass laterally to his right or left to Fortunis right next to him. Yet instead of making instead of making the pass, the easy pass to Fortunis right next to him, he decides to dribble into two players, loses the ball. This would be a poor giveaway in possession because this was a very bad decision. Unless you're going directly at goal and there's nobody else around you, you should not be trying to actively dribble through two people when you have an open person that's 10 meters next to you that has open space to dribble in front of them. Secondly, executing an action with the ball very poorly. You could be making a good decision, but then instead of playing the ball to whoever you're supposed to play it to, you completely shank it. And then the other team gets the ball and it ends up in a counter or ends up in a positional attack for them. This is also a poor giveaway in possession. As a professional athlete, at this point, you should know how to pass the ball and you should know how to put them relatively where they should go. 
This is what we use to identify poor giveaways, things with intent and also really terrible execution. When Cissé overhits a ball by 30 meters to somebody or when somebody takes a shot right in, in front of the goal and kills a couple of birds. These are things that really don't get picked up in metrics, bad decision-making, things like that. So we use this poor giveaways in possession. We go through all of the losses, all of the mistake passes, all of the poor offensive things that occurs and put together a rough general number of how many poor giveaways occur so you can have an idea of who is and isn't error prone on a regular basis. Yeah, we call those Lazars for short sometimes, by the way. If you hear us use that, that's what that means. One last note about analytics in general. Uh, we do understand that a lot of this stuff doesn't have a firm definition, and that might sort of irk some people. But at the end of the day, the point of analytics for us is to just get a bigger picture, to have every single action of the game broken down, which is something that's really hard to do with the eye test, as we mentioned at the beginning. So maybe you might say that something wasn't a poor giveaway and we might say it was, but at the end of the day, it's the acquisition of all of that data and making our best attempt at quantifying it. That is sort of the spirit of analytics and what we want to do. You know, some giveaways might be thought of as more poor depending on where they're located, even if it's the player doing the same thing based on how dangerous it is to give the ball away there. We acknowledge that. And that's what we're trying to do to our best abilities with some of the analytics that we have designed uh, as modifying the Y Scout analytics and the Stats Bomb analytics that we get. That's basically the story with analytics. That's about all we have. Uh, in general, I just want to say that if you feel like you don't understand analytics, I hope this helped. I think a lot of people oftentimes don't want to believe or take any stock into some of the numbers because they're oftentimes very arbitrary or hard to understand. And they can be a bit intimidating as well. Uh, whether people want to admit it or not, sometimes people don't believe things just because they're intimidated by the way in which they're presented. So we want to try to do better at making this more accessible to people and helping people understand what we're trying to say. Because I think it's, you know, it's a bit easier to understand when it's really explained out, but oftentimes it isn't. You know, we haven't gone through this as thoroughly as we just did in any of our episodes. You know, maybe we sprinkle it a bit here and there, but we wanted to make sure that there's a place where this can all be explained very thoroughly and people can go back and check. So I hope everyone found this a valuable experience. Adi, any final thoughts? No, not, not too much. Uh, I mean, just like what you said earlier, the point of the analytics is really for us to identify what's really going on. It's not for us to say we know more than you. It's not for us to even say you're wrong. The whole point is for us to see what's on paper, to question what we think we saw, and to make sure that our idea of what happened during the game is actually correct. Are we properly criticizing a certain player? Are we not giving a certain player enough credit? That's the whole point of this. It's to help us try and identify what the real problems are, what the positive things that are going on with the team. And finally, what players are doing and not doing what they're supposed to. Yep, that's, that's totally right. And for people who say that we cherry pick stats and use the numbers as a means to push an agenda, well, I don't really know what to say to you because we pretty much present the same numbers for every player for every game. And we try our best to make sure that things are presented without any bias. And that's why we use the numbers. If we really wanted to push an agenda, we wouldn't need analytics to do that at all, trust me. So we, we really want to make sure that despite being Olympiacos fans, we are not shy about that. We are not shy about loving Costas Fortunis. 
you know, we're not going to act like that's not the case, but we do want to try to make an attempt to be unbiased and make content that more or less people don't have a huge problem with. So with that, I want to thank you so much for listening. If you found this valuable, uh, please share this episode. You know, maybe someone who doesn't even care about Greek football might find this interesting. Uh, and we hope that this was concise enough and interesting enough and uh, accessible enough for everyone to learn something from it. And we hope it enriches your experience of listening to our podcast as well, because we use a lot of this stuff. Continue to talk to us on social media at Gate7INTL, on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Reddit. If you have any questions about this stuff or any new analytics that we begin to bring up, because you know maybe Scout will come out with something new that we'll start using, you can always DM us. We're, we're happy to answer questions or listen to any feedback. So with that, uh, we thank you all for listening, and we will see you very soon.